So I was reading an article recently by an English journalist by the name of Andrew Brown, who about a decade ago had been involved in what he described as a very uh, volatile debate among a group of... Uh, man, wow. I can't even get started today. Just leave it where it is. So we're starting again in three... I was reading an article recently by English journalist Andrew Brown who was talking about a debate that he had attended about a decade ago between a highly volatile groups of people. There, there was a Christian minister on the one hand, uh, there were two Iranian refugees who had escaped political persecution there, along with a couple of academic liberals who were arguing about whether or not it was right to evangelize Muslims. And the debate, according to Brown, kind of went mostly nowhere because people just couldn't decide on whether or not a religion-run state could survive when it descends into fascism. But he said the only time in which there was any agreement around the room happened at this point. He said someone made a little speech about how no one minded religion as a private activity. It was only obnoxious when the religious tried to force their opinions on everyone else. The whole hall joined in applauding this sentiment so obviously and unarguably right. So Brown, who is an atheist, mind you, went on to argue in this article how, how silly the notion is, but how universally accepted it is. That is, you can have your religion as long as you keep it to yourself. And honestly, this is really the key to the understanding of the spirit of our day, because it's the privatization of religion uh, that sort of gets peddled so often in our day in conversation, but people so rarely ever really think it through. And you know people haven't thought it through, because the second that you start to ask questions about it, you realize that no one can really privatize their religion. Brown makes the point that religion itself is not just thoughts about God or the gods, but it's actually beliefs about humanity and what it is that makes us tick. It's beliefs that include how we flourish as humans and what it means to live the good life. Uh, it contains convictions about the role that human beings have to play in organizing society around common ideals. <laughs> and to say that you can sort of place those beliefs on the back burner and not have them come out in the way you act in society or express your opinions about voting is simply to ask those people who hold those convictions to hold them very superficially, if at all. And so, you know, religious types like ourselves that would be sitting here watching a sermon will inevitably feel a sense of alienation from the world around you when they per, uh, portray it in those terms, uh, which, by the way, something Jesus kind of promised would happen anyway. But before we get to uh, condescending to secularists here, you realize that even Christians have our own version of this. Uh, I know because it's kind of the lesson that I sort of picked up from a Southern religious upbringing because I grew up in a tradition that lived with something that we call the altar call. Um, you know, people who wanted to respond to the sermon that was just preached had three options. Some would come forward and receive Christ for the first time. Uh, others would come forward so they could rededicate their life to the Lord. Um, but a third group could come in and do what they called dedicate their life to full-time Christian service. Now, it was that last category that was sort of reserved for people who believed that God wanted them to take jobs in vocational ministry. To, to become ministers or missionaries. But the way in which it was presented for me, I came away with this distinct impression that there were spiritual jobs that I could take, jobs in ministry, jobs that dealt with the Bible or religion, and then there were secular jobs that I could do, uh, business, uh, accounting, doctors, lawyers, etc. And before too long, I began to realize that the world had become sort of divided in my mind between these two kinds of activities. There were spiritual things I could do, 
Bible study, evangelism, prayer, church attendance. And then there were what we call secular or worldly things that I could do. Uh, Work, recreation, hobbies, entertainment. And what's funny was this impression kind of, it stayed with me all the way up until I went to graduate school and had some friends start to talk to me about the way I was talking about my life uh, and try to help correct me on it. And they challenged me from passages just like the one that Steve just read in Ephesians chapter 6. Because they began to explain to me that Christianity just can't be itself until it begins to permeate through the most basic relationships in life. Last week, we looked at marriage and the fundamental building block of all human relationships. And so this week, we now see that the gospel has application to our families as children and as parents as well. In other words, Paul sees all of life as being spiritual for Christians. So that once Jesus is Lord, he is over every aspect of a Christian's life, whether it's personal, whether it's corporate, whether it's national, uh, whether it's internal or external. And tying it all together is this underlying message that there is a healing in these most fundamental realms of human existence that reunite the whole world under one head, even Christ. That's the whole message of Ephesians. It'll never happen until we see this religious and secular dichotomy broken down. Because the gospel even speaks to this most fundamental environment of our human interaction, which is our families. And he brings to it this kind of simple, profound wisdom that I want to unpack for us here under three headings. Number one, I want to look at the simplicity of these commands. I want to look, second of all, at the wisdom in these commands. And then thirdly, at the motivation behind these commands. All right, so let's dive into this. Number one, first of all, you've got to realize these commands come with a great simplicity. Paul opens Ephesians 6 with, when you think about it, just four short verses about our family relationships. And I'll be honest with you, you really couldn't be blamed if the first time you read these verses, you start to think to yourself, are you kidding? (laughs) Do you have any idea how messed up my family is? Um, Do you know how complicated this interaction with my parents and children can get? And and this is all you have to say about this? Honestly, with all the complexity of family system, it almost seems like Paul's embarrassingly brief in his instructions. But I actually think it's a worthwhile question. Why is this so brief? And I think the answer is simply this, because the manner of the gospels working in us is simple. And it's a simplicity that's very unique to Christianity, because the way it works is, is that you plant a principle into the soul, and then the implications of that principle begin to work themselves out in real life. And honestly, it's part of the genius of Christianity that it doesn't come with a system of of minute directives to tell you every step you're supposed to take and where and how to take them. Rather, it gives you the big picture and expects God's people to work it out, to pray, to study, to interact with each other so they can find out answers for life. Look, if you look at every other major religion, you're going to see that in order to sort of make those religions really practical, they have to publish volumes and volumes of application on it. This is the Jewish Mishnah. Uh, This is the, the Hindu Vedas. What are they doing? They're trying to make their principles touch real life in more and more specific ways. Christianity doesn't do that. Now, at least we're not supposed to do that. Honestly, I think there's still a temptation for us to try to do this in lots of ways, not the least of which 
is when we get to the topic of how to discern God's will, I wonder when the last time you ever thought about this was. I really think that it's almost accepted practice for Christians today that when they begin to look for guidance from God, they look for Him to reveal His will to us through these powerful inward impressions. You know what I'm talking about? We spend long sections of Christian life trying to sort of uh, you know, divine the tea leaves of our own feelings. Wait a minute, what, was that God telling me to do that? What, was that the Spirit moving me to do this? Again, I'm not trying to be too hard on this, but I do think it needs some kind of critique because speaking personally, I really began to notice in my own life that when I was really honest about my motives for really wanting to know God's will for my life, I was wanting to know it because I wanted the good life that He promised to those people who did His will. Which actually is not a completely far-fetched notion, but if you think about it, it really puts the conversation about God's will squarely in the realm of my personal comforts. So what really am I aiming at when I want to know what God's will is? And that realization just led me to ask, is this even how God works? Like, is it true that God kind of has His will for us, you know, and He's kind of got it right back here behind His back, waiting to reveal it to me when I'm, I don't know, yielded enough, or whether I'm obedient enough, or holy enough, or whatever. What if God actually works in us the way in which He works in Paul's epistle? That is, He plants this truth And once he plants it there, he gives his children the freedom to work it out among themselves using their creativity, using their imagination, their minds, always with an eye to his guiding sovereignty over it all that comes from his word. But when we try to discern God's specific will for each and every decision we make, I would argue that Christians often become just as impractical as they are oftentimes thoughtless. We find ourselves you're trying to make decisions over parking places or grocery purchases that honestly just have very little to do with this grand project of the advance of the kingdom in God's world. Uh, and yet we persist in it. Why? Mostly, I think, oftentimes because we don't want to spend the hard work at thinking. We want someone to tell us what to think. And therefore, obviously, we have someone to blame if things go wrong now, don't we? My point is, is that Christianity is just different. There's a great example in Galatians chapter 2, where Paul has this controversy with Peter uh, and accuses him of racism. Um, Apparently, the Jewish widows were getting preferential treatment in this daily distribution of food that the church was doing at that time. But when Paul confronts them in chapter 2, verse 14, he says this. He says, their conduct, uh, or at least Peter's conduct, was not in step with the truth of the gospel. It's interesting, in the NIV uh, translation of that phrase, it says, Paul says that he is not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. I love that. The gospel has lines. There are behaviors that are incompatible with the great principle of God's mystery that is revealed to us in the gospel. And the only way in which we uncover those lines is not through mysterious revelation of God in our minds or in our feelings, that honestly are so hopelessly subjective. But why do we discover it? By looking into the wisdom of these commands. So we dive into these instructions, uh, and as we jump into them, we need to remember their simplicity and be very careful how we judge others who take different paths. Hey, before I move on to the next point, I do think that there's an application for us as we start to talk about the next few months in the life of our church. We're trying to assemble as a church as much leadership and wisdom and Uh, intelligence and science that we can on what it looks like for us to reopen. 
And we need to expect the fact that there are going to be people that disagree with us about how we execute this. That's got to be okay. And we have to give freedom of conscience in this time to allow the gospel to work itself out in the lives of people in unique ways. For those that believe we ought to be as safe as we possibly can by remaining quarantined, how will they learn to get along with those who believe, no, we have to reopen our world and our economy? I don't know is the answer to that question. But the Bible's way of working is, is we will work at this together and look for wisdom in the midst of it. Which brings me to the second point, and that is the wisdom in these commands as it comes to our family, right? So what kind of wisdom do we have? Well, let's start where Paul starts with talking to children. Look what verse 1 says. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Hey, by the way, Paul is clearly referring here to little children. And we know this is because if you are a grown child of parents and you're still dependent on their guidance for life, um, we call that a problem, Now, how do I know that? Well, because Paul connects this command to a much broader encompassing fifth commandment from Exodus chapter 20. Because Paul's instruction there is to say, honor your father and your mother. Uh, That word honor there uh, comes from the Hebrew word kavod, uh, which literally translated means weight, heaviness. And so the command that Paul gives for children at any age is to give their parents opinions about their life the proper weight, the proper importance, which I find very balanced teaching. Because it's interesting that Paul doesn't say to love your parents. Um, What he says is, is to honor them. In other words, there is a truth that comes out whenever you begin to parent over time, that there's all kinds of stages that you go through as parents, aren't there? But how you honor your parents at each stage of your life and theirs is going to depend on what stage you're in. When you're a tiny child, the instruction is pretty simple. Listen and obey whatever they tell you. But as you get older, there's an assumption that you're learning to make better choices on your own. In other words, you are being trained, children, to leave your home. When you're an adult person, you've got a whole other set of lessons to learn about honoring aging parents. But the truth is, there's actually all kinds of parents out there when speaking about quality There are bad parents, and there are good parents. Uh, And there's a lot of spiritual negotiation that comes along for children to negotiate when you decide what to do about what you believe are bad parenting decisions that may even go against God's law. For instance, it would not be honoring God to allow parents to continue to emotionally manipulate you into following their dreams for your life rather than yours. Any parent who, through through the influence of their own insecurities that they haven't dealt with yet, who continues to belittle, sort of push emotional buttons of their children, doesn't need to be listened to in the same way that a responsible parent does. Man, that takes a lot of negotiation. And I know where the parents are right now. Right now you're being like, shh, what are you doing? Don't you realize that my kids will take advantage of me if they think that? Well, maybe so. But look, don't you see how Paul wants you to deal with your suspicion of your children, parents, and the potential manipulation of you with the gospel before he pronounces you to be the one that's always right. You know, because I'm your parent, that's why. That should only be a verbal tactic that's used with very young children. Because the hope is is that the older they get, the more children need to be prepared to make those calls on their own. Okay, so that's the question. How do children honor their parents? I had a couple of thoughts that came up to me just from my time. The first one is this. We honor our parents' children by not stereotyping them. 
Um, it is just as insulting to your parents as it would be for you uh, to put you in a cubbyhole or to judge you for things that you used to be and not what you've become. I, I do think there's this inertia to view your parents as kind of static entities. They always do the same things. Hey, newsflash, your children can, ch- your parents' children can change. They can grow. I speak from my own situation. My father, quite honestly, did most of his changing, personally and spiritually speaking, after I was out of college. He joined a men's movement in the mid-90s that led to so much healing between uh, my mom and he, between uh, all of us. But I really wasn't ready for what it was like for me to emotionally relate to him once he started changing. It can get complicated. But don't stereotype their parents. They can change. Secondly, children, forgive your parents. No, they didn't do a perfect job. They messed up over and over again. And they may very well have trouble admitting that they did. Ginger and I have come to the conviction that there is coming a day when Anna Grace and Caroline and Luke will need to forgive Ginger and me for the endless foolishness that we put them through, the vast majority of which that we can't even see now. You have to own that early, parents, by the way. Because here's the deal, children. If you can't forgive your parents, they're still controlling you. And if you're carrying around a ton of anger towards your parents, they're still controlling your behavior. That has to be resolved. (laughs) Ask your spouse if your relationship with your parents is affecting your marriage. Thirdly, though, children, we have to grow in independence. You heard me right on that. Look, parents, in your best moments, you are raising your children to leave you. Show them that you're ready to do so, children. Look, one of the hardest things to grasp is that this has nothing to do with your quest for personal freedom when they're asking you to get organized, to complete tasks on time, to make schedules and stick to them, to show financial responsibility. I know it sounds like mundane stuff, but if you can start now, even at the earliest of ages, by thinking through what it means to put your time in control, by putting your faculties underneath your own uh, discipline, Finishing school on time, finishing assignments on time, honoring your parents. Show them that you can do this and show them that you're ready to leave. Okay, so just a few thoughts for uh, children. Secondly, though, I want you to look, though, at parents. What does Paul give to parents? Well, what he says in verse 4 is amazing to me. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Man, I find this an interesting verse in the book of Ephesians. Because of all the things that you could have told a parent, why this? Well, it turns out that word translated provoke has the sense of exasperating, uh, instigating, inciting. It's the idea of kind of uh, pushing your children's buttons uh, and kind of getting under their skin. John Calvin says that parents mustn't uh, irritate their children by unreasonable severity. Now, how do fathers do this? Well, I read a great article on the Gospel Coalition website a number of months ago uh, on this very topic, and I thought it was fascinating. The author mentioned a few of the following. He says, number one, you antagonize your children when you're afraid of them. I mean, really, you have no idea how much fear there is in parenting. And what happens is, is there's a constant temptation to relate to your children on the basis of that fear instead of simply wanting to know and be close to your child. You know, when I was uh, working in campus ministry many years ago, we did an unofficial poll uh, by some of our campus ministers on what was the single most important factor uh, in parents of children who had children who embraced their parents' values versus walked away from it. And guess what? It had nothing to do with homeschool, public or private school. had nothing to do with whether you did spanking or timeout. It had nothing to do with those things. 
It all came back, we found, to whether or not students felt like they could talk to their parents and that they would get a reasonable hearing. And that only comes when I stop relating to my child as something that is a threat to me, to my standing in the community, to my personal sense of sanity, whatever. You frustrate a child when you treat it like an object and not like a subject. And of all the things that our children need to know, they need to know that in their desperate search for direction in life, you delight in them. Secondly, you antagonize your children when you allow them to do really dumb things. With impunity, by the way. This is what Paul means when he uses that word admonition. It is supremely unloving not to punish a child when their behavior you know will end up hurting them in the future and ultimately making them sad. Look, y'all, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. And the moment that a child gets the sense that he or she is an annoyance to you, discouragement's not far away. And with that discouragement comes a lot of spiritual disease. Thirdly, you antagonize your children when you don't respect their differences. Uh, This comes in a lot of different forms. Mostly it comes from your parents not realizing that their children are different from them (laughs) and different from your siblings and different from your parents' uh, friends' children. In other words, this stereotyping can go both ways, and it's an exasperation for all when, 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 when your children are interacting with what you want them to be rather than what they actually are. Man, that takes a lot of wisdom. Number four, you antagonize your children when you discipline them out of anger. Like parents who lose control and lose their temper and hurt their children, they discourage them. Look, think about how twisted it is to inflict harm in the name of love. But it'll almost certainly damage the child and the relationship. In other words, be careful, parents. You might need a timeout just as much as the child does. Number five, you antagonize your children when you never show them your flaws. Hey, when was the last time your children saw you fail uh, and you had to apologize? Uh, and did they get in trouble when they called you out on it? Look, Christians are trying to raise repentant, not perfect people. And so what kind of example did my children get in this regard? I wish we had time to do more. But look, in the version of these commands that Paul gives in his letter to Colossians, he gives the rationale for not antagonizing your children. In Colossians 3.21, he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. But the key to good parenting is to be an endless reservoir of encouragement for your child because most of them are bottomless pits of needs for encouragement. John Cox was the one who told me one time, children come out of the womb needing to be de-shamed. How have I done at that? So that's the wisdom Paul gives us. Finally, we've looked at the simplicity of the commands and the wisdom of the commands. Let's look briefly at the motivation behind these commands. Look, I've been talking about these topics for way too long not to know that there is an ocean of shame that comes out of parents and children the second that you start talking about family relationships. Honestly, it makes me uncomfortable even while I'm talking about it. Um, And that pain's going to come out somewhere. And so the question is, how can I resolve that sense of shame on the inside? And I think the text gives us a guide. Because in each of these commands, it keeps saying, children obey in the Lord. And parents, it gives the instruction of the Lord. In other words, please remember that Paul sees all of life as under the glorious revelation of God in Christ and that the joy of the gospel is pervasive. And it is equipped to guide you into all of life's activities, including being a parent and a child. How? 
I heard a preacher one time connect this passage to some verses in Romans 2 where Paul says, and there is no partiality with God, which is really interesting because if you think that you're a somebody and you hear that there's no partiality with God, that information is kind of terrifying because it knocks you off your pedestal. But if you're struggling and you're full of shame, those kind of verses are immensely encouraging. And what a joy to know that your God comes to you as if you are on equal footing with all mankind. He is no more or any less impressed with you of how you've parented or how you failed to parent. That's what the gospel is. He's not more proud of you as his child because of how you've performed at being a parent. Or is, nor is he ready to cast you out because you blew it. I want to finish with an illustration about how this sort of works its way out and sort of drive this home. And it came from something that honestly was one of the most difficult things I've ever read that was written by Rob Lowe. Yeah, that Rob Lowe. I don't know if you saw this article a number of years ago, but it was his reflections from a book that he had written about what it was like to take his son and drop him off at college for the first time. Okay, listen to this, about how he processes this. He says, one of the great gifts of my life has been having my two boys and through them exploring the mysterious, complicated, and charged relationship between fathers and sons. As I try to raise them, I discover the depth and currents of not only our relationship, but the ones already downstream, the love and loss that flowed between my father and me and how that bond is so powerful. After my parents' divorce when I was four, I spent weekends with my dad before we finally moved to California. By the time Sunday rolled around, I was incapable of enjoying the day's activities, of being in the moment, because I was already dreading the inevitable goodbye of Sunday evening. Trips to the mall, miniature golf, or movies had me in a foggy, lump-throated daze long before my dad would drop me home and drive away. Now, standing among the accumulation of the life of the little boy that he no longer is, I look at my own young doppelganger and realize it's me who has become a boy again. All my heavy-chested sadness, loss, and longing to hold on to the things that they, as they used to be are back, sweeping over me as they did when I was a child. And isn't that fascinating? He can't think about his almost-grown son without sort of the painful thoughts of the relationship that he had with his father, the unresolved conflicts, the pain. But this is my point I want to finish with this. You just can't touch family dynamics without feeling the effects of sin and alienation that's all around it. In other words, being a child and a parent will never lack for weight, for kavod. It's a profound thing that this God has created. But if there's anything that we've been saying is true, it means that if Christ loves you, then He loves you in the midst of your parenting and child-rearing successes and failures regardless. And the funny thing is, it's only when that notion fills you up that I began to have the freedom to enjoy the simplicity of that, to repent well where I can, to trust where it's become hard to trust. Because the gospel reaches down into the most mundane activities of life, the most fundamental relationships of our families, and it transforms it there. And if you don't walk away or you disagree with anything I've said today, don't leave that. How will the gospel be the frame, the lens through which I begin the question of working out the conflicts in my own family? How will that happen? And what if we were the kind of community that set that in the forefront with every relationship that we had? 
Let's pray to that end. Lord Jesus, give us grace then to sort of work through it. Our, our minds are spinning even now as we think through uh, the struggles that we have with our families. Uh, we pray for children who have uh, moved away, run away, uh, who have run away from you even. Uh, we pray for parents who are oblivious to the pain that they're causing their children. Father, so many things that are going on 